Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. Thank you so much for lending me your ears. And of course, the only non-renewable resource that you've got, and that is your time. You could be just doing so many things right now, and it's not lost on me that you've chosen to press play. We're going to take great care of your time and your interests today. Thank you. If you're new here, I pray that you'll stay all the way through to the end. And if in fact, this does uh, resonate with you, if you give us a rating and a review in iTunes, it always helps others like you find this show and learn more about the clean energy economy. Today's entrepreneur is Hanan Fishman, president of Allen Khan Systems. Hanan's got over 20 years experience in technology development, commercialization, and prior to joining us here in the solar industry, led his previous company to a successful acquisition by Autodesk. Now, he's taking on the power electronics industry, and today, you're going to get the goods on how and why he made his jump into renewable energy and where he sees the segment of microgrid expanding in the overall solar and storage picture. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the show if you haven't already. That's going to ensure that you don't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this to educate and elevate your skills as you join the clean energy revolution. Now, we've got over 400 episodes of founder stories and startup advice just like this over at mysuncast.com. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't yet, go check those out. And hey, while you're there, Here's an opportunity. Uh, I'm now accepting applications for just a couple of more coaching spots as I've opened them up to help folks get ramped up for 2022 with a solid plan. If that's you, I encourage you to fill out the app and let's have a call before the holiday crush hits us to see if there's a fit. Just click on the work with Nico button and we'll set up a call. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Cool. As I mentioned today, we've got Anand Fishman on the show. 20 years of experience with global companies and multi-million dollar P&L responsibility commercializing new technology. I'm stoked to have him here today on Suncast to share his insights from microgrids to power electronics and how to bring new products to market in the renewable energy industry. Hanan, welcome to Suncast. Thank you so much, Nico. Yeah, man. I'm really excited Another have another uh, PA expert. Pennsylvania is just birthing so many cool companies into our industry right now, our good buddy, uh, mutual friend, Josh Beck over in Pittsburgh, and so many exciting entrepreneurial ventures being spurred in the greater Philly and Pittsburgh corridor. Uh, it's really exciting to see. Before we go into detail about sort of what brought you into the solar industry, I'd like to just maybe go back a little further. Thinking back to your youth or childhood, perhaps even was there a particularly strong sense of having a hero figure in your life? Who did you look up to or who did you consider to be that, that icon in your life? Well, <laughs> that is a, a very emotionally charged question for me because believe it or not, my, um, my hero growing up was actually my best friend is a guy named Bobby McIlvain. And 
it's even a little hard to describe at the moment because uh, unfortunately Bobby passed away in 9-11 in, in the Twin Towers. And so this is obviously around the time of year where obviously we think most about that event, especially being the 20 year anniversary. But, yeah. you know, often when I talk about 9-11 and I talk about him, I say, you know, you know, Bobby, we were best friends growing up, but he was actually, he was really my hero. He was, wow. he was the best athlete in the school. He was the best student in the school. And, you know, he was, uh, he was my, one of my closest friends. And so, so that, that probably doesn't apply much to solar or, or business at all, but <laughs> that's the honest answer to that question. That's really cool, man. I appreciate that. When you think back now on uh, on Bobby as uh, as an adult and someone who inspired you, were there any particular character traits or qualities that stand out for you? I think excellence one. Mm. I, I think kindness and empathy two were really the uh, the two biggest ones. I love that kindness, empathy, and excellence. Things that we should all aspire not only for ourselves but for our teams, right? And on was there anything in particular about your childhood or, or upbringing that had more of an entrepreneurial bent, any particular family experiences? <laughs> Actually the opposite. Um, <laughs> I can remember when I was a kid, my dad had started a company and it damn well near killed him in terms of, you know, he must've lost like 50 to 75 pounds. He was an absolute oh, wisp. And, and, you know, it was funny where, Growing up and having seen this experience, I I wondered to myself, why, you know, you, you always hear about people say, oh, you know, I want to ha- have my own company, be my own boss, all that kind of thing. And having watched the experience of my dad, it's like, why would anybody ever want to do that? That seems terrible. I kind of had a similar experience. It's funny that you mentioned that. Keep going. So, yeah. So after college, I, I graduated. I had what I thought was a pretty conventional job. I was working in New York City at a firm that's a lot more infamous now than it was then called Lehman Brothers. Decided to leave to help. But, uh, to join a partner in really start really growing a, what was essentially a project became a software company and it was you know at the time my my rationale was hey you know what's the worst that can happen right it's we go out of business and i go back to business school like everybody else in 2 years right and yeah. when i first started doing it it was just immensely stressful uh, so much so that you know i woke up every day and literally threw up and then at some point i kind of stopped throwing up and i kind of got used to it and then at some point, I kind of got to the point where I couldn't really imagine living any other way, really. And so mm-hmm. calling me an entrepreneur is a very, very nice thing to say. I, th- I, I think it's more than I deserve, really. But I, like I say, I'm someone who's definitely spent his career in young companies and, and commercializing technology and hopefully growing them into in- industry leaders. Well, I'd love to know if you uh, have a particular moment that solar or clean energy as a category came present in your thought process? And, and when did you kind of realize that this is where you're going to start to focus your career? Well, it, it's a good question. And really, I found myself, as I mentioned in, in this previous venture that I didn't been involved with, it ended up being a, the better part of a 20-year stint, which I yeah. would have never imagined being the case. And, and you know, when you, when you do something that long, particularly when you're affiliated with a certain product, it's almost a little hard to tell where you end and your job begins. Mm. And so I really, I ended up actually leaving that. I was very blessed to be in a position where I could move on from that. And really not exactly knowing what I wanted to do, but knowing that, hey, okay, I didn't necessarily set out to be in CAD CAM software my entire life. It was just something that kind of happened. And really, you know, obviously renewables for a whole 
variety of, of obvious reasons is is a really exciting space to be in. And it wasn't just about renewables. It was, of course, about just power in general, right? That word power, right? It's, it's a very big word. And so I was incredibly blessed to have the opportunity to join Alan Khan at the stage when I did. And I again, I thought we were really just on the precipice of doing some really exciting things. And I was hoping that I'd be able to use my leverage my experience in commercializing new products to help really help the company achieve its potential. Hanan, I really want to dig in on some of the finer details of kind of the work that you guys are doing present day. But before we do that, there's a few sort of table setting items that I like to pull out and, and lay before the listener. What career path did you not go down, but always thought you would? It's a great question. Actually, my my goal in life, my real ambition in college was to become a journalist. You almost did it. Well, I sort of did in a roundabout way, in, in a yeah. sense. All through college, I'd always been on the school paper. Um, back, I, I I spent quite a bit of time working for a guy in college who was a lot more, who was a lot less famous now than he was then, named Michael Bloomberg. Back when Bloomberg News was still kind of a startup, and <laughs> yeah. that was just the greatest job ever. And I decided to take a little bit more conventional path after college. But nonfiction writing, quite frankly, has always been my passion. And I guess you could say, outside of my family is really my only hobby outside of work at this stage. But I've been very blessed to, to have that love because throughout my career, I think I've been able to leverage my real passion for nonfiction writing and blend it with my career even. And it's been really, quite frankly, a big hallmark of our marketing strategy here at AllenCon, where you know we do focus heavily on thought leadership pieces, white papers, blogs, because you know, what we do is a little different and it does require a fair amount of explanation and, and collaterals in a in a way that you know are sort of buzz buzzword free and can be understood by both degreed engineers and and perhaps you know non-technical personnel alike. I don't want to gloss over something you just said that for me is very fascinating. How did you meet and get to work for Bloomberg early in <laughs> yours and his career? Well, this is a really funny story too. So I just applied for an internship when I was in college, but here was the funny part. I sent my resume and cover letter they were posting for interns. Um, I went to college in Philadelphia. Actually, their main news office at the time is just, was just outside of Princeton, New Jersey. And I remember writing my cover letter, and on the cover letter, it said Bloomsburg News. Not Bloomberg News, but Bloomsburg. And I'm sitting in the interview with essentially the managing editor of the news department. I forget the gentleman's name. is absolutely ages ago. And I can see him staring down at my cover letters with the S after the M circled really, really sort of clearly. And I'm watching him say, I said, look, obviously I spelled the guy's name wrong. I apologize. You know, that's obviously massively embarrassing, particularly given that you're applying for uh, a position as a journalist. But I'll tell you, obviously you can completely not consider me for the role and you'd have every right to do that. But I'll tell you this, if you do, I think you'd really be missing out. <laughs> and that was that was kind of how I got my job at uh, Bloomberg News in the, uh, in the, in the mid-90s. Do you remember some of the key elements to your pitch of what he would miss out on? What I think I told him he'd miss out on is somebody who had a pretty, because I, I in college, I was studying accounting and finance. So journalism yeah. has always been sort of a, more of a hobby than, than anything else. And I think kind of to, earlier in the conversation, you know, kind of an homage to my hero growing up, who amongst other things was a really great writer. And I think maybe part of that was me sort of, uh, indirectly looking up to him as well. But really the pitch was, you know, you're going to, you're going to miss out on someone who's got both really unique nonfiction writing skills, but also really understands the world, the world of business in, in, in a pretty unique way. 
I'm also fascinated with the idea that you went to school for, I guess, a couple of years to get a computer science degree and then went on to well, do. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not, I, I suppose it's, it's not that complicated. It was a, it was a situation where I ended up going to a school initially to a school called Drexel, which happens to be across the street from Penn. <laughs> and the, the primary reason I went there is I got a, a full scholarship and I wanted to play soccer. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, my first game of my sophomore year, I was a goalie and I ended up shattering my elbow, which was not a great recipe for a long and fruitful goalkeeping career. And so by that point, I wasn't overly enamored with the quality of the education. So I decided to transfer all the way across the street. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Amazingly enough, I actually was able to continue playing uh, college soccer at Penn, even though it was with one arm for a year, but uh, just a little tricky. But um, yeah, you get through it. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for following me down that that rabbit trail. I always wonder uh, kind of the, the decisions that folks make along the way. It's in part and parcel to, I think, what what becomes the fabric of our decision-making process and and how we see opportunities, how quickly we are able to move in and out of them or respond to them. You know, you spent a lot of time at Partmaker, then Autodesk, almost 20 years, as you point out. I believe that fundamentally the roles that we have in life form building blocks. They form, they give us a chance to test theories, learn decision-making principles, first principles of business, mental models, et cetera. I'm hoping that you've had some time to reflect. Obviously, you've got a lot on your plate at Allen Con, but to reflect back at times on the work that you did at Partmaker and Autodesk, do any particular tools come to mind for you, management tools, et cetera, that you find you're routinely using now and you're grateful you learned then? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I definitely come up through the school of hard knocks. I think first and foremost, you always want to take a values-based approach to everything you do. And that starts with integrity. Okay, so mm-hmm. so everything really begins at that value and really cascades down from there. You know, certainly good old fashioned customer service skills, and I think that just being responsive to both your customers and your prospective customers. Again, you may not always have the answer they want to hear, but the key is to communicate and not you know and and not clam up. But then I think also just from a business perspective, just the general discipline of how you do things on a day-to-day basis, right? Having checks and balances in your business, really making data-driven decisions as opposed to purely just things on a whim or emotional decisions. How do you go about, as the president, as the leader, organizing data that serves you? How how do you go about parsing or or asking for and making sure that it's being collected in the proper way? (laughs) That's a great question. I think one of the elements of a small company, I've had this happen before, and certainly it's the case here at AllenCon, is to some degree, we have more databases than people. (laughs) Um, That's probably not exactly true at the moment because we're probably big enough that we've outstripped our databases, but we definitely have a number of databases um, here. Mm -hmm. And and it, like you say, is the key is collecting the data that matters the most. And particularly in a business as, quite frankly, complicated as this one logistically, there is a lot of data to manage. So, yeah, that is, that is uh, not, a, not a small task, I would say. I guess what I'm asking where maybe I'm struggling with, if you were to give me advice as a startup entrepreneur or even a medium-sized business manager, using data or, or asking for the right data, are there any particular... Sort of models or, or or thought processes that help guide you on making the right decisions to to know what the right data is, and maybe you point to specific metrics or ways that you collect it. First of all, making make sure that data is actually easy to access. I know that sounds like a 
a strange comment to make, but it's a it's it, it I've seen it certainly in in companies of different sizes where just literally getting to the data is mm. is is hard. Also, don't so also don't overthink yourself. Don't feel like you need to have some super sophisticated ERP or be a you know don't be afraid just to create your own dashboards. Really, you know, be that in. Excel or Google Sheets. I mean, it, it, that is, I'll say, is the amazing. Th- that is the amazing thing. I think that really has helped. Actually, um, since I started my career, is just you know, cloud-based systems. Right, data is just so much more accessible than it used to be. It used to be a bit of a yeah. chore just getting data out of databases. Really, do you find that you're using tools, aggregation tools, visualization tools like Tableau or others? No, not that. I'm, quite frankly, not that. Not sophisticated, that sophisticated. Yeah. Personally. Yeah, a lot of my friends make fun of me for being really uh, a tool oriented and uh, and too too far out on the bleeding edge of the digital frontier. So, pardon if I if I do get into it. I I often wonder like where is the line drawn for leadership? Right, a president of a company. I just had one of my um, closest friends on for our episode four hundred, and he made fun. He says, "Nico, you're always talking about tools. You've got this fancy Calendly booking system." He's like, "The only two tools I use are, are Microsoft Word and." Microsoft Excel and I guess my email <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, yes. and he's run, you know, he ran, he ran and sold a billion dollar company. So noted, I, I would love to know, uh, in, in that vein. And I think this question often does come from my own sense of curiosity around which problems to tackle first or, or where I have the biggest hurdles or obstacles or headaches. When you think about leading Alan Kahn, or maybe even thinking back to Partmaker, is there anything that you would consider to be like the number one headache? Uh, and I'm not saying like for someone in the role of president of a division at Autodesk, I'm thinking more president or executive leader at a company like Alan Kahn, where you're trying to commercialize a product. There's a lot of moving parts, literally, but there's a lot of uh, unknowns and product market fit is still being worked out. What for you would represent the thing that continually pops up as like, oh, I got to fix this or I got to address this? I think more than anything, I, I can't underscore, I think, just the logistical challenge of manufacturing a high-power, high-voltage piece of power electronics mm-hmm. that could be used in so many different ways. I think that is really the single biggest challenge, which is really kind of unique is, is believe it or not, at this point, I'm by no means am I saying where is it, it's easy street over here from a sales perspective, but, you know... <laughs> I think there's different kinds of businesses. Certainly a software business is a much more sales intensive business than a company like this, which which is really much more logistical and execution focused. And so I think really, I'd say that's the, the single biggest challenge every day. And obviously in the environment that we're in, obviously just constantly having the deck reshuffled on you from a supply chain, from a quality perspective, that's definitely the biggest challenge, no question about it. And doing that in the face of, oh, by the way, it's bleeding edge technology as well. Before I dig into bleeding edge technology, which is where I think we'll spend the bulk of the rest of our time. Tell me, is there anything that is particularly true for you that you feel most people would disagree with you on? <laughs> you know, my, it, it, certainly before I got here and even, even when I got here, I think people have been calling me crazy my entire career, largely because I just do the things that I think are the right things, not necessarily the things that are the same things. Um, that others do. And I think mm. plenty of people in the, oh, certainly over the past five years have called me crazy. Um, oh, yeah. that, it, things don't work that way. And, mm. but I think at the end of the day, 
you know, especially coming into a new industry, I think to a degree that's helpful, right? Because you're not, you don't totally. necessarily feel the shackles of the conventional thinking, oh, well, this is how it's, of course it's done in this industry. Can I double click on that? Can you identify what for you represented early at your time at AllenCon conventional thinking that you were able to sort of see around or, or think differently about? It's all about overcoming the things people say you'll never be able to do. So for me at AllenCon, for example, we build products that are called DC to DC optimizers. They take one level of DC current and voltage in and spit another level of DC current and voltage out. Ultimately, these are products at some point are going to be connected to an inverter somewhere. So there's this sort of need to become partners with inverter companies, people who Mm -hmm. make what could be, you know, in principle, you could construe as your competition. And certainly in the early days, as we started connecting to third-party inverters in our first project, there was some degree of that. And there was some one particularly uncomfortable moment with a major inverter supplier. But really, it's just pushing through and say, yeah, well, obviously, if we're going to be successful, we're going to have to have those partnerships. And we've been really very blessed so far to really enjoy great partnerships with numerous inverter companies, so much so that a number of them have provided us equipment that we use in our lab, and they send it to our facility. And we're able to offer really great integrated solutions to our mutual customers. So I think that's a good example of just, again, knowing that, okay, yes, people say, oh, that'll never happen. But well, you know what? It kind of has to happen if we're going to be successful. So we better figure out a way to make it happen. I'd love for you to talk to me a bit about how you discovered or were attracted to AllenCon. What was the opportunity that was identified for you? And as you survey the market, even now, what are you doing differently? Ooh, well, okay, that's that's like seven questions, but so- Okay, sure. We'll, we'll just unpack the first one. What, what attracted you to AllenCon? Well, simply put, it's the I saw it as the opportunity of a lifetime, really. Mm-hmm. The opportunity to join a company. I joined a company that was seven years in, right? We had been in business for seven years Mind you, we didn't have any sales. We were still a pre-revenue organization at the time. And that to me was just, I mean, what an incredible opportunity, right? Here's an organization that has had this whole group of incredibly talented people that there's been tremendous investment in the technology. And it's really now just a case of how do we take that investment and commercialize it and turn it into a marketable product? So I think that kind of leads to the second question, which is, I think the single biggest thing we're doing differently is really easy to identify, which is to say, when I started here, we had no customers, right? So we were (laughs) doing a very challenging thing, which was speculative development, right? You're trying to develop what you think people need. And that's a really hard thing to do. So I think the single biggest sort of cultural change we've made over the past five years is we don't develop anything without a customer, right? So That doesn't necessarily mean we're expecting our first customer of a new product to absorb 100% of the development Mm -hmm. costs furthest thing from. But by the same token, we're not going to go out and develop a product if we don't have a committed customer for that product. Because what happens is if you go out and develop a product that you don't have a customer for, the risk of missing the mark is just way, way too big. So I think right now, you know, from a development perspective, we are in just a total customer response mode. And that's really how it went, right? We started with one very sort of single-use product, which over the first couple of years, 2017 and 2018, where we're putting that product in the field, not only the product evolved technically in terms of performance and improving improving it, but it also, like you said, use your term, the product market fit, where we, we really discovered more of what people really want. And we turned 
what was initially a very sort of single-use appliance into much more of what today is a, really a platform that can do a whole variety of different things. I mean, again, it's all within DC-DC conversion, right? It's not like we've, we, we're, we're losing our focus or anything of that nature. But that really is the biggest difference is be, having your development sort of roadmap really being completely dictated by what very clear market needs expressed by very, very easily and identifiable customers. Can you outline for me what that clear market need is? I think there's probably a lot of folks maybe who are are going to be listening, thinking, I'm not clear where an optimizer sits in the overall architecture and why it's needed. Sure. So let's, yeah, let's talk about that, right? Let's talk about that. We have been so blessed really to have picked a product and technology to commercialize at literally the right place and the right time. Because, mm-hmm. you know, what has happened really markedly over the past four years is Really, I would say nothing short of a huge paradigm in the world of power conversion going all the way back to the Tesla Edison days, right? Go back to Tesla Edison. Again, Tesla's AC, Edison's DC. We all know how that went down. But what is happening is now with the meteoric rise in, obviously, solar, battery energy storage, certainly electric vehicles, and we can even throw fuel cells into that mix. These are all DC sources and or loads. And so Mm. now this this desire to combine these DC sources and loads without having to have them talk to one another in AC, right, is just growing really, really palpably. So again, we we initially had developed this DC-DC technology for a very specific purpose, not dreadfully different than what it's being used for, but certainly not, that wasn't the exact vision. But was at, it a different cat? Was it a different uh, industry focus? No, no, no. So, so <laughs> Alan Khan is an unbelievable company. We were originally founded with a remarkably ambitious vision, which is to build the world's biggest central inverter. So the first seven years was focused on building a 10 megawatt central inverter using using a series of galvanically isolated DC-DC converters as a distributed harvesting system to perform maximum power point tracking in a PV array and step up voltage to a centralized DC bus. Oh my goodness. So to make it look like a bunch of a bunch of string inverters, but it's really one central inverter. Correct. So basically, we were divorcing the PV harvesting function from the AC to DC conversion function. Quite frankly, not that this is what we're trying to do, but a good, you know, a lot of people think about solar edges system, right? Optimizer and inverter. And in many ways, we've had that conversation with prospects and customers over the years. You could think of it as solar edge on steroids. Where the pivot came was in 2016, where we, you know, where we said, look, here we are, we're, we're at the time where I think we were less than 10 people and said, look, it's going to be really, really challenging for a group that's less than 10 people to successfully commercialize a product as ambitious as a 10 megawatt central inverter. Now, we certainly haven't given up on that dream, but we, I think we got more realistic on what it was going to take to implement. That was part of the reason, not certainly by no means the only reason at all, but that was part of the reason when we began our commercial journey, where we pivoted to commercializing our DC-DC optimization technology, and we basically broke it off from that larger system. Were you there when that decision was made? Yes, that was coincident with my joining the organization. Okay. I mean, what I hear there, and it's like fascinating, I like to refer it to companies people will know, right? Like Next Tracker, extremely well-known in the industry. Very few people who are just getting in the industry realize that it was spun out of Another company they're now becoming familiar with called Solaria, right? It was Solaria's approach to effectively developing their own projects and they had to create their own hardware 
to optimize the product that they had created. And they brought in an icon in the industry, Dan Sugar, and he looked at it and he goes, guys, this tracker is remarkably well done. Let's spin this out as a product uh, because Solaria was not at the time very profitable. I talk about it in an interview I did with Suvi Sharma that is fantastic if nobody's listened to it. It's one of my, one of my favorites personally. But as I'm listening to your story, I'm thinking back to that, to that example because now we know that Howard Wenger left at, uh, SunPower and he's now the CEO at Solaria and he's going to take that company likely very public. They're doing exceptionally well, right? So that product... That product platform had a much longer gestation period, but the tracker piece was something that could be commercialized quickly and where the market was ready for it. It sounds to me like it's a similar analogy to what you guys are doing. And I've, I would really love to think or hear your thought process as you were breaking down from a commercialization of product perspective, having done that in other, other industries, how did you really go about like compartmentalizing here are the core elements of the skills of this business and we've got to we've got to huddle around something and pivot to get to revenue. Well, it, it was it was pretty straightforward. I mean, we really did an analysis of the marketplace, right? And we mm. looked at the inverter space at the time. Again, bear in mind this is 2016, a little bit of a different landscape. Mm-hmm. And we saw no fewer than 39 major competitors, you know, little guys like GE, SunGrow, Eaton, <laughs> Schneider, people like that. Yeah. We looked at the DCDC optimization space and we saw not only far fewer competitors, I mean, like say the two two of the bigger ones, Solar Edge and Tyga, really aren't competitors to our product at all. I mean, yes, they're DC DC converter products, but they're in different spaces than we were targeting. Right. Namely residential. Right. So residential so, and C and I. So, yeah. you know, and 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 the companies that were present were a damn sight closer to our size than the ones in the inverter space. Yeah. And we had a very uniquely identifiable technological differentiation from those products that was that really led to a very definitive value proposition and it's really the core of our value proposition today and we also had a fundamentally different approach to going about solving the problem so it all seemed up to line up pretty logically in terms of a like say a commercialization pivot particularly given the level of investment in the technologies over the previous seven years Are you still trying to rely on Excel spreadsheets for the financial analysis of your solar and energy storage projects? Energy Toolbase is your savior. ETB developer sales and modeling platform helps developers streamline the sales process and close more deals by providing an intuitive project modeling process that precisely calculates utility costs, energy savings, and project economics in a transparent and defensible way. With the industry's only in-house utility rates team constantly tracking and updating their database of more than 70,000 rates, you can ensure the utmost accuracy. And finally, you'll communicate your company's value proposition to your customers with fully customizable proposals and document templates and close more deals. That's why we're here, folks. Go test drive the industry's solar and storage modeling platform of choice. Use the code SUNCAST and get a 30-day extended free trial energytoolbase.com or click on any of the toolbase logos at mysuncast.com. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. (laughs) But that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show 
some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast, I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. Hanan, you mentioned a uniquely identifiable technological differentiation, core to your value proposition. Could, could you tell me what that is in an elevator pitch? Sure. It's, it's a little bit in the weeds, but let's go for it. So the, fine. the fundamental difference between the products that we, that we sell today versus, say, the ones our competitors with sim, in, in, the, in the same category offer is our product offers a technology called galvanic isolation, where basically mm. what that means is our device, when it's converting DC to AC or DC to DC uh, current and voltage, actually has many of the same properties that people look for when they build even an AC coupled system, which is say isolation, which means the grounding schemes, for example, on one end of our device on the input relative to the output are completely electromagnetically separated. It also gives us a tremendously wide voltage range so that we can really be technology agnostic when we talk about combining these DC sources and loads together on the same DC bus. So, you know, if we have a 1500 volt PV array, but with a significantly lower battery voltage that we're trying to put on the same DC bus, that isn't a problem or a limitation for us. It's just sort of inherent to the nature of our system. So again, it's a, it's a little bit technically in the weeds, but really it's that galvanic isolation piece. And even though we do have four U.S. patents on our galvanically isolated DC-DC converter technology, somewhat of the secret sauce is, of it is that we also rely on next-generation power electronics. Specifically, uh-huh. we use high-frequency switching silicon carbide devices where most of our competitors are using what are called IGBTs, which switch slower. So putting it in a slightly different way, Nico, is that you know because of the next-generation components we use, we're able to build much smaller, more efficient devices that offer this benefit that our competitors really wouldn't be able to. I want to dig into some of the the use cases. But first of all, if I'm not mistaken, you guys are based in PA and you actually manufacture here stateside. Is yes, that right? That's correct. We right. I'm looking at my factory floor right now. I mean, it's fascinating how many of us right now are following the what we hope is a trend of bringing manufacturing back to the States, the obvious reason that we haven't done so is just it hasn't been cost competitive. Most of your competitors don't do much of any of their, uh, even assembly, let alone manufacturing here in the States. Why does it make sense for you to do that here? Well, again, we are certainly an earlier stage organization to be sure. But that being said, we are very committed as we continue to grow and scale and continue to build things in the US. And I would say the two biggest reasons, first and foremost, is quality. And and control over the product. I can't even imagine having somebody even outside of this organization, much less outside of this country, build this product and deliver a quality product to our customer. I can't even imagine how that would look. So, because when you build a high power, high voltage piece of power electronics, I mean, literally every box we ship out of here is UL listed to 80 kilowatts, right? So that Mm. means every single device we sell gets tested to its maximum power rating. So one of the real hallmarks of our facility is we have an absolutely world-class DC power electronics facility. We have a 
dedicated one megawatt substation just for our facility here. So we're able to, first of all, test our products at high power. I, I, I think that's something that very few, if any, CMs or outsourced manufacturers would even be able to offer. So that's certainly the first thing. And then, of course, the second thing is, is IP protection. I mean, whilst we are very yeah. blessed to have a strong patent portfolio, there's lots of things we do that I guess you would qualify as or classify as trade secrets. And the best way to uh, to guard those things is to keep them keep them under your roof. I can think of an entire other episode that I can unpack in just digging into this one element around how you guys are structuring a business for scale. And maybe I'll come back to it, but I want to dig into something that you guys do a, a ton of. In fact, very recently I read an article that you were you wrote in Microgrid Knowledge about DC microgrids. I think that few people understand microgrids well, far fewer even understand DC microgrid or the differentiation between a DC or AC. What is the definition that you would give to microgrid at a high level, first of all? In the simplest definition of the word, Nico, is to me, a microgrid is a self-generating, self-consuming island of energy. Okay. Mm. So I think we have a number of projects today that I don't think our customers are calling microgrids, but really that's what they are, right? They're co-located solar and storage where the solar is the generation asset. The storage is obviously a storage asset and energy is being generated and consumed right at that site. Again, a number of the projects we've done are explicitly referred to as microgrids, but more and more that's really becoming the trend in the CNI and distributed generation space for, for solar is the addition of storage. And in many jurisdictions, best example is Massachusetts, which has the SMART program, where there's a very heavy incentive not to have a system over a certain size, right? So your solar system can't be bigger than X, right? And at the same time, there's this incentive for storage, right? Which means it basically leans toward having your solar and your battery coupled on the DC side of the inverter. And you know, by definition, whether you know it or you not or not, you've basically just created a DC microgrid. And for those maybe who don't understand the terminology around coupled. Okay, so let's yeah, let's just explain. Yeah, because I hate buzzwords. And we use a lot of them in our industry. Well, I try to stay away from them. In fact, <laughs> we've got a great white paper on DC coupling of solar and storage. And right on the first page is a big buzzword buster. So, ah, so I love it. one of the early lessons I learned in my business career is you don't ever make your audience feel dumb. And you, a great way to yeah. make your audience feel dumb is by using buzzwords that they don't understand and you do. So if I do that, I deserve to be slapped. Okay, so let's just really break down what these mean. So all coupling means is connected, is how are these two things connected? So a source is something that generates energy, solar panels. A load is something that consumes energy. A battery can be both a load and a source because it can consume and discharge energy. And so when those things are connected electrically in front of an inverter, meaning they don't, you don't have to leave the DC world, that is referred to as DC coupling. Whereas AC mm -hmm. coupling is the opposite. It's where your solar system, for example, is connected to its inverter. Your battery has an, its own inverter. So you're literally going from DC of the solar converting that to AC, and then when you charge the battery, going from AC as an input, rectifying or rectification, that term refers to converting AC to DC to charge your battery. So an inverter is called an inverter because inversion implies going from DC to AC, rectification implies going from AC to DC. 
So AC coupling is connecting a source and a load on the AC side of an inverter, okay? Whereas DC coupling, by definition, removes the inverter as the intermediary between those two items. That is fascinating. I've heard it described and explained before, and I still learned it in that description. So I, I owe you one. Thank you very much. That I love it when I get a chance to really dig in and learn. Could you help me understand then, with regard to microgrids, how is the conceptualization and actually implementation of microgrid evolving now in 2021? Well, I think with the popularity of DC coupling, I think microgrids are leaving the realm of the science project and entering the realm in, of the everyday, quite frankly. I don't think they're there quite yet, but it's pretty obvious that that's happening very, very quickly. And quite frankly, we can just see it with our own growth and order intake. Could you help me understand what are the typical problems that folks are trying to solve when creating microgrids? Well, let's separate microgrids from DC microgrids. So let's just answer the microgrid sure. question, right? So, okay. so generally speaking, when people are creating a microgrid, they're trying to solve for having a weak grid, right? So mm. they want to be able to be self-sufficient, resilient, if you will, and not have to depend on a broader distribution grid. Also, microgrids are really, particularly solar-based microgrids are really great where you've got remote places, islands always come to mind, where external resources, external traditional resources, fuel such as you know coal, natural gas, just are not indigenous to the area. So you've got to literally import your fuel. Very often it's in the form of diesel, which is remarkably expensive and remarkably dirty. Historically, microgrids have been all about reducing dependence on really expensive fuel and reducing dependence on really unreliable grid distribution. Today, I think it's a very different story, particularly in the world we live in here at AllenCon, that of DC microgrids. And the DC microgrid is a really different animal. And I think, you know, Nico, what I've always observed of your, of your podcast and your show has been you're quite geared toward the developer, if you will. And the project mm-hmm. developer, I think that's even your background, if I'm not wrong. So today, I'd say the most one of the most attractive things about the, let's call it the DC-coupled approach to solar and storage, which is almost becoming a synonym for a microgrid, is the fact that you can build a, a, larger, a larger alternative energy system with a smaller interconnect to the grid. Because what happens is when you AC-couple, the way the interconnecting authorities look at a system they look at it as the sum total of the grid connection. So if you have an AC coupled system, by definition, you have two inverters. So the interconnecting authority is going to look at that project as the AC capacity of the sum total of those two inverters. So by only having one inverter and putting more generation and more storage behind it, you can effectively create the same energy capacity but with a much smaller interconnect, which makes it much easier to get projects approved, particularly in a really busy interconnection queue. And again, specifically as you look at, again, states like Massachusetts with the SMART program, where they're specifically incentivizing smaller interconnects to put less strain on the grid, that's really what's adding up to all this growth. And, you know, it's funny, I can, I I remember a couple of years ago attending a talk given by the president of PJM, obviously an individual who really understood his marketplace. And he was saying that, yeah, we can't, as, as, a, as a grid operator, we can't get enough of microgrids because you're shifting a lot of that burden away from us. And as the grid becomes more crowded, and you know, obviously that's only going to continue to get more and more the case, 
clearly that DC microgrid concept makes a lot of sense of being able to you know, both produce and consume and capture the excess production, right? Because as, as I'm sure much yourself and much of your audience is familiar is the way PV plants are actually built today, they're built with what is called a DC overbuild, which basically means if, if I'm building a PV plant that's a one megawatt AC nameplate, typically I'm going today to typically put about anywhere from 1.2 to 1.5 megawatts of PV in front of that inverter. So if I have an AC coupled system, which by the way could just be AC coupled could just be a synonym for a regular solar system, right? Is typically from the hours of 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., I may actually be curtailing my production, meaning I may literally be throttling down the capacity of my PV panels because I don't want to exceed the capability of my inverter. So that's the other nice element of DC coupling that you don't get with AC coupling is that excess generation that you may be getting during the day, you can now redirect into your battery, right? And then, you know, when the sun goes down or the sun becomes unavailable, you can then release that and extend your extend your solar day. And that, in a nutshell, is effectively overcoming what I would argue is the single biggest drawback of solar, which is, of course, solar on a standalone basis is, by definition, an intermittent resource, right? It's only available right. when the sun is out. And turning it into what we really need it to be to really achieve our long-term climate objections, which is a dispatchable resource. And that's really the object of the exercise. And if you want to call that a microgrid, fair enough. You want to call that a DC-coupled solar storage system, you can call it that. But really, at the end of the day, that's what this is all about, is creating a mechanism whereby clean power can become a much more reliable and dispatchable resource as part of our energy mix as it becomes a bigger and bigger part of that. I don't know that I have had more than a couple, maybe a handful of folks on the show who have explained so completely and thoroughly the way that as a project developer, one would want to think about not just the architecture, but the use and extension of how your product can, uh, or, or really how power conditioning can be conceptualized to expand the project to, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the conceptualization that you, you introduced here of getting through the interconnection queue faster because you have optimized right-sized your system to be appropriate for the market uh, without sacrificing the system size, without sacrificing the overall impact it can have on the facility or on nearby facilities in the, in the grid or microgrid that, that you're operating in. That's, uh, that's really intriguing. I was grateful to not only have you help me understand this better here, but also the article you wrote that I referenced earlier gave me a, a great deal of insight into some of the key issues or problems we have to overcome when developing microgrids. One of the things that I'm well aware of, and, and also I think this comes back to your sort of secret sauce around galvanic galvanic isolation. It's probably the first time I ever heard about or thought about galvanic isolation was around the topic of grounding. That's kind of, as you point out, one of the devilish details of DC microgrids, that there are different grounding schemes. Could you unpack that element for me just a minute? Because I think it's one of the more unique and, and interesting facts that folks maybe have, don't think about at, at a systems level. No, you're absolutely right. And it's definitely an esoteric concept. Let's just be clear, right? This is not <laughs> That's right. This is not like, oh, right, <laughs> I should just know about this. No, I mean, this is definitely getting into the weeds. And the reality is, is I think to keep it as high level and sort of general purpose as possible, you know, this idea of 
when you say to somebody, yeah, solar is a DC source and a battery is a DC load, why would we leave the DC world to have those two things talk? That's like, that seems so intuitive, right? But the reality is that hasn't been the case for like a very, very long time in the history of power. And the reason for that is that AC, AC connections, by definition, offer a lot of protection. Right. And one of those protections is isolating different grounding schemes. And, you know, solar and batteries have very different behavior with respect to potential to ground. And in particular, batteries are very sensitive to potentials to ground. When you talk about putting these things together on a common DC bus, you have to be very careful in making sure that they don't interfere with one another. And the best way to do that is to isolate them. Again, the technical term is galvanic isolation, but I think that makes it overly complicated is just to literally separate them. That's literally what you're talking about is and allowing them each to operate independently as as the manufacturer of those products intended for them. Earlier, you mentioned other DC sources and loads like storage and EV charging, which as we see states like California mandate storage and uh, new solar on all or solar on all new buildings. I'm curious how you see the interplay and even innovation around integrating these different elements in particular with regard to commercial industrial facilities in the coming three to five years. Well, that's a great question. And I I think you hit the nail on the head is integration is where the innovation is, right? And I think today, most solar and storage integration or even even storage integration really goes on at the large scale, right? The utility scale. Mm -hmm. And so- the reality is, is there aren't that many organizations out there that are really good at integrating solar and storage at the CNI and distributed generation scale. That is definitely an area that is growing rapidly. Again, for all the reasons we discussed, be it from a you know from a incentive program like Mass Smart to just the overall benefits of the system. So I definitely see more and more capable organizations getting into into that into that side of the market where, mm-hmm. like say, they're able to integrate, again, systems that aren't necessarily 100 megawatts, but maybe 500 kilowatts or two megawatts in an efficient and, and, and sensible way. Anand, I'd, I'd like to ask a couple of questions here around product commercialization specifically, because I know a lot of listeners are in that space of integration and development, but still others are focused on bringing new products to the market, just like you are. From your perspective as a leader of not one, but two organizations that have brought market changing and paradigm shifting products to customers, could you outline for us what a product commercialization process ought to look like, or maybe how you thought your thought process has evolved around that over the last 20 years? So certainly in the world of that we live in here at Alencon, right? So we build a device. So let's just start with that. It's a regulated market. So the first step is mm-hmm. you can't even think about selling it to anybody without being UL listed. Mm. Okay. Now, I think that's a big misconception that a lot of people have when they go to commercialize a product in, say, a space, a regulated space. Say, oh, hey, I built the product. It's UL listed. All right, let's go. That's kind of like that's kind of like your ticket into the stadium. Okay. Then, you know, the, really the next step is obviously product market fit, making sure that the product you're offering from a specification and performance perspective actually solves problems that people are willing to pay for. And then the other piece, of course, is making sure that the process of making it is repeatable and reliable. 
And that's an interesting process, right? Because you don't always have the chance to spend 10 years in the lab perfecting it. And oh, by the way, even if you did, the reality is, is where you really find out where the, the weak points of your product are is when you go put in the market in, in the field. And because there's yeah. no substitution for you know what real world, real real world deployment experience gives you. So I would say that's really the, the you know the process. Obviously, there's that very clear barrier to entry in a market like this, i.e., UL listing. Then getting pilot deployments, establishing mm-hmm. a reliable track record, and then the next step is, of course, expanding and scaling that into into a repeatable business. Hannon, I'd love to think with you about how mentorship has played a role or an impact in the work that you've done. And you've been president of two companies, you know, led multiple teams globally. And I'm curious, what are some key lessons or takeaways from the important mentors in your career or perhaps just life mentors? So I think from a mentorship perspective, I think when you're talking about leading a team or working with a team, the first one is respect, right? You have to have respect for everybody's input and everybody's lived experience and what they're bringing to the table. The other really important one, and it's quite frankly one I know I personally struggle with, but I really do work on it every day, is empathy. And I think mm. you know, empathy is a word that maybe 10 years ago wasn't even in the vernacular, and today we hear a lot about, but I still think people don't really understand it. And again, let's just be clear, what empathy means, it's, you know, obviously sympathy and empathy are often confused, and they're not at all the same yeah. thing. And what empathy is, is really the ability to put yourself in the other person's shoes, right? And re- and, yeah. and it obviously goes hand in hand with respect. Yeah, really beyond that, it's just good old fashioned values, right? Is and, mm-hmm. and really being, having values, not drive what you do. Because, you know, it, it's the old story, like in business, people will say, you know, well, look, of course you're in, you're, you're in business to make money. And, and I'm not trying to sound... I'm not trying to make myself sound more enlightened than I am, but to me, the main purpose of the co- of a company is to delight its customers. Now, if you if mm. you can't make money delighting your customers, you obviously are going to have to figure out a new way to do business. That that goes without say. But I think if if you take the position of right, we've got to start by delighting our customers and doing everything we can to do that. Obviously, we're not always going to be able to do that for reasons great or small. And you take that approach. And then again, you, you mix in some other, I'll call it old-fashioned values. I mean, one that I've always believed in is that you know, people don't always care how much you know, but they want to know how much you care, right? right? And you know, particularly not being from this industry, not being an electrical engineer, I obviously know far less than many of my colleagues and many of my customers about, about what they're doing. But the one thing I'll definitely never be outdone on is how much I care about their success. As you survey the, not just successes, but dead ends and dare we say the word failures, are there any particular moments in the rearview mirror that you look at and think, wow, that changed the way I see the world. That helped me become a better business person. Well, I, I think I, I think the reality is, is we always learn more from our failures than our successes. Mm-hmm. Here at AllenCon, I, I, I mean, I perseverate on my failures. I perseverate on, my, on, on them every day. Maybe I've even perseverated on them 10 times today. It's the old adage, right? It's in any business transaction, there's only two answers. There's yes and a no, right? And no is a perfectly acceptable answer so long as it comes with a lesson, 
So, so long yeah. as we're learning from our failures and trust me, I, <laughs> I, I, at the moment, I probably feel like I've got far more failures than successes because like say what we're doing here is not easy, but, but like say we, we just can, as long as we're continuing to learn from them and getting better as a result of them every day, then they have value. In the same vein, what are you most proud of? Definitely what I'm most proud of here at AllenCon and, and in, in my previous role is the fact that we've come up with a product that has allowed people to do things that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. And if it, if it weren't for our hard work and our innovation uh, and our stick then people simply wouldn't be able to move forward. And yeah, you know, we really are... It's not just a case of adding value to yourself and adding value to your employees in the form of creating a job, which is great, but it's actually adding value to society. And particularly when you talk about mm-hmm. doing that in the world of renewable energy, I mean, now that's really adding value to society. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it's hard not to get excited about the fact that you're developing a product that, like you say, is solving one of the probably single biggest challenges in clean energy penetration, which is eliminating the issue of of in, intermittent of intermittency. Anon, I believe that leaders are readers and readers are leaders. I'd love to know what book you have gifted or recommended the most and why. <laughs> well, gifted and recommended are two different things. So the book I have gifted the most, and this may be, mm. has nothing to do with alternative energy, by the way, or even totally fine is healthy sleep habits, happy baby. And I have basically given this to every person I know who has had their first child. Um, because yes. when you have your first child, you know the most important thing is sleep. And this yeah. book is a very counterintuitive way to getting newborns to sleep. And you know, I came to it the hard way, which is to say, you know, when I had my first child 17 years ago, <laughs> my wife and I both worked, and we had to figure out a way not to be zombies. And so, um, yeah. so when you talk about books that I've gifted, that is definitely the absolute number one gifted book. Yeah, I've read that book as well. It's by, for those who aren't show notes checkers, it's by Mark Weisbluth. Yes, Dr. Mark Weisbluth. On a slightly more practical level, from a a business perspective, another book that I would really recommend is Measure What Matters. Oh, yes. Which is, um, again, I've definitely recommended to everyone. It's really really served to form a lot of the way we try to do things here at AllenCon, which is to set quarterly objectives and key results, meaning... Mm-hmm. What are we going to achieve and what are the steps we need to do to, to achieve those things? I mean, yeah, it's effectively another method of goal setting, but in terms of, you know, the best business reads I've probably had over the past five years, I'd have to say that's at the very tippity top of the list. And, you know, I would encourage any of your listeners to, uh, to have a go at that one. Yeah. And for those who are completely unfamiliar, it's written by a guy named John Doerr. It is the de facto Bible of how Google gets things done. Uh, the KPI method was adopted and Larry Page, in fact, wrote the forward for the book, if I'm not mistaken. His Google talk, if you just search Google talk, John Doerr, D-O-E-R-R, is, it's fascinating and it's as, it's every bit as good as the book. And I would say the book is a great manual for how to actually practically apply KPIs in your business, which is from a business coach perspective and as an executive, I'm sure, and I, I can see you nodding, you agree. It is, uh, if you aren't currently putting KPIs in your business as the single greatest lever you can add to your business in twenty in Q4 2021 or starting in 2022. Hanan, is there anything that you would describe as particularly impactful from a habit or consistent practice 
perspective, something that you do regularly that gives you leverage and yield in your life? I think the key is really creating structured disciplines for the activities that matter the most. And I think, again, particularly here at AllenCon, I think because we've, we are a newer organization, we've had the opportunity to really build up the right way and put the right disciplines in. For example, every yeah. day at eight, from 8.15 to 8.20, we have a production meeting with our production team. From 8.30 to 8.45, we have an engineering meeting with the engineering team, a stand-up. And that now that all grows out of the agile scrum methodology. Yeah. And again, mm-hmm. not trying to use too many buzzwords, but the bottom line is, is whatever methodology you subscribe to, to me, it's all about repetition, discipline, and focus. You know, I would love to tell you I run every day. I don't, I wish I did. <laughs> um, there's so many things, so many, so many disciplines I wish I had that would, would no doubt make me far better. But the good news is, like I say, is in, we have built those disciplines into our business and not that mm. we achieve our goals every day. In fact, we often fall rather short, but the reality is we do at least have that discipline built into sort of our DNA where we are doing those right things every day and you know, we're holding ourselves accountable to the best of our ability in that regard. Hanan, I am grateful for the opportunity to sit with you and learn from your two plus decades of leadership experience to learn more about how uh, you see our power industry and, and the large, broader renewable sector scaling, the, the tools and technology available there, microgrids, et cetera. If there are folks who similarly want to reach out to you or learn more about you, read more of what you're writing, how do you like to be found? Personally, obviously LinkedIn is uh, easy, mm-hmm. right? Um, Obviously, anybody's welcome to shoot me an email. It's hfisherman at allenconsystems.com. I respond. I try to respond to every single email I get every single day. Actually, you talk about disciplines. I, I will. I will. I will say that. Let me. I, I will share one bit of, uh, in part, one bit of. Maybe it's a wisdom. Maybe it's just something I'm bizarrely addicted to at this stage. Which is, sure. Every single day, I try to not only read and respond to every email I get, but also file it. And what I mean by that, and really, truly, keep an empty inbox. And the way I do that. This is a trick I picked up years ago when I used to travel overseas a lot is I sort my emails by from, right? So if you go into my, and so I cannot use Gmail. I cannot use a web client based email. I can only use Microsoft Outlook. Anything else, I just literally fall to pieces. So every day I will Mm -hmm. sort my emails by from. And once I've addressed all of those issues, tuck those emails into that individual or that organization's folder and hopefully keep as empty of an inbox as possible. And basically the way that, that repetition works is that that generally happens from about anywhere from 7 to 9 p.m. every night. And then from about 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. every Saturday morning, I give a weekly sweep of that. And that's kind of how I try to stay ahead of it. So I guess that's that, that's definitely one little tidbit I'll share. I appreciate that so much. That's actually a great little tidbit to wrap everything up. But let's end today with a final bold question, as we always do. What one thing do you see happening Anon, in the marketplace that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Well, I think that the continued conversions of DC sources and loads, specifically hydrogen and fuel cells, is something that is going to is going to come upon us very quickly. And I think the other really big thing to watch is how we really scale up EV charging, because I think the reality is, is the single biggest thing standing between society and broad scale adoption of electric vehicles is efficient charging at scale. Wow. I love that. And I concur on all points raised. 
Anand Fishman is president of Allen Khan Systems, and it has been a true pleasure to have you here on Suncast today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Solar Warriors. Well, that's a wrap on today's episode. A special thank you to Anand Fishman for joining us today. I'm really, really excited about the future for microgrids and, you know, as Anand just said, the convergence of DC sources and loads, lots of things coming down the pike, like hydrogen. If you are eager to keep learning, and I know you are, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion, along with social media links, book recommendations, and so much more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. Since I know you're going to be hopping online, if you're not already, would you mind sharing this episode with someone you think would be inspired by it? Someone that maybe would challenge it even. If you have commentary, jump up on LinkedIn, raise your hand, give a like while you're at it to the post that we've made about this episode and leave a comment. What was your takeaway? How would you push back? Where did you learn? And who do you think should be tagged to listen to this show as well? Last but certainly not least, thanks once again to our sponsors who help make this content free for you each and every week. You can learn more about who they are and what they can do for your business by going to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And that's also how you could learn how to partner with Suncast to reach thousands of solar warriors and climate champions just like yourself. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>